Inside the huge hospital set up in a few days with army help. We couldn't have done it without them. They clearly have the expertise on how you do something at pace. I mean, how else could the NHS have built a hospital in 10 days? Veterans called up to help in the battle. You could have been outside for two weeks or 20 years. It's in your DNA. There is that sense of service and understanding how to drop into that structure and start delivering beyond the numbers that you have there. That's why we're looking for the veteran community. Plus, how do you counter the threat of pandemic fake news? I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. The coronavirus pandemic is the biggest global crisis since the Second World War, according to the Secretary-General of the United Nations. As the world reaches its one millionth COVID-19 case, the military is preparing for a long haul at home, helping the civilian response. The RAF's on standby to assist with medical evacuations across the UK. Already, they brought one critically ill patient from the Shetlands to Aberdeen for emergency treatment. Meanwhile, in London, the army has helped to create a huge temporary hospital in a conference centre. James Hurst has been to see the NHS Nightingale Hospital. So this is a traditional NHS intensive care bay. Um, so we've got our, our clinical information system. This is the, the ventilator. Eamon Sullivan is the chief nurse for the NHS Nightingale Hospital at the XL Centre. So this is the key piece of, of, of equipment which actually will, uh, via tube in the patient's mouth, keep their lungs open. He's showing me one of the 500 intensive care bed bays which make up the first stage of this temporary hospital. I'm an intensive care nurse by background, so I've helped design this with my fantastic intensive care nurse and doctor colleagues. So this is modelled on an intensive care unit, bed space in any other NHS hospital. Eamon's day job is as chief nurse at the Royal Marsden, but he's also an army reservist major, and he's done similar jobs in field hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan. This, though, is still new. Nobody essentially has... Uh, the, the book for this hasn't been written. We, we, are, we, are, we are writing the book uh, um, day by day, but, but what I will say is we've got the right team, we've got the right people, both NHS staff and military staff, who've got, who bring lots of different uh, experiences together. So it really is the dream team. When we talk about creating 500 hospital beds, it's not just about the beds. It's about having power and pressurised oxygen for life support systems, IT so that doctors and nurses can have the right medical information about each patient in each cubicle. The Army's main role here has been coming up with the plan for that, then making it happen with the help of civilian contractors. Patients in beds will also need people to give them medical care. The forces will have a smaller role in that, with some military medics part of the clinical operation. Under NHS leadership from the Chief Operating Officer of this Nightingale Hospital, Natalie Forrest. It's an NHS hospital run by NHS doctors and nurses and staff and volunteers. Any military colleagues will be NHS staff, so it's difficult for us to separate ourselves. We are one and the same at the moment. What's the experience been of working with the military? Amazing. I, I mean, we, we couldn't have done it without them. They, they clearly have the expertise on how you do something at pace. I mean, how how else could the NHS have built a hospital in 10 days? She's being advised by Colonel Ashley Boreham, the commander of 256 City of London Field Hospital. The largest hospital I've ever built was in Oman. Uh, that was two hospitals, a total of about 600 beds. But, it's, and, but here it is on a completely different scale, but, but it's in one place. And it is an operating model that has few variants in it. 
with a type of patient group that allows us to design a really good hospital system. So there are positives that actually make this job in some ways easier. It's just a scale. I guess in recent years, one of the most significant field hospitals the British Army has done has been the one at Camp Bastion, there's been the one at Sierra Leone for Ebola. Does it have similarities? So I'm quite privileged. I was commander med in Afghanistan, so I've worked in Bastion and I've been a, a CEO of a field hospital in Iraq and I've worked in Africa and I've worked in the Middle East. So uh, I know the, the systems. The difference is they are trauma hospitals that have multiple uh, patient types that we cater for. Here the model is simpler, so it's one type of patient which makes the model different but much simpler to execute. So the experience we have is actually operating at scale and operating at pace and simplicity. Alfred hospitals, because they're complex in difficult places, need to have an operating system that reduces variant to make it easy to command, control, run and deliver. When the first 500 cubicles here start taking in patients, the construction job will be far from over. Potentially another 3,500 beds will be put in here. And the Army's already helping create thousands more at other temporary hospital sites around the UK. James Hurst with that report. Well, I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, James mentioned there the other hospitals being built in cities up and down the country. There's a sense we're heading into the peak of the outbreak. So the sooner the army can help get them set up, the better. Yeah, the army knows how to look at a problem and fix it because it's doing it all the time. And we heard they're building hospitals in Afghanistan, in Africa, in the Middle East. There's another thing that's going on, and that's in, the, in, in places like Imperial College London. They're already thinking that this is not going to go away. Corona is a come, what they call a come-and-go crisis. Rather like, say, Ebola or whatever. It's there with you, and you've just got to live with it, fix it while it's, while it's there. So we could be heading for um, COVID-21, 22, 24, for, for the rest of our, our, our lives. And so this size of a hospital may become a pattern for the future, in certainly in five different places in the United Kingdom at the moment, from Aberdeen down to Newcastle to Manchester, Birmingham and London. It's a very sobering thought. And, and one thing that stuck out in James's report was the comment that the book for this hasn't been written. No, it's been written as we go along, and the person that's writing it is the person that's controlling uh, the disease itself. The disease itself is, is unparalleled at the moment because, A, we don't know really what it is, and we don't know long, how long it's going to stay. There is an illusion that sort of next summer we'll all be back playing cricket and tennis and having garden parties. Not true. Uh, nobody can actually say, yeah, that's how it's going to happen. And so therefore the practical side that you heard James describing at the moment in just one hospital is going to be something, a pattern, a reminder on our lives for the foreseeable future. Yeah, 3,000 reservists are now being called up to help in the response. Should we expect that number to rise in the coming weeks? The difficulty is finding more reservists. I mean, there aren't that many reservists, and there's certainly not that many reservists that can necessarily break away with what they're doing. They may be in, you know, in isolation. They may maybe have, a, have other things to do, and maybe they don't want to do it. Don't forget they're reservists, they're volunteers, and they don't have to come. So I think 3,000 is quite a high, high response. But there's one important thing. The thing about reservists is that they are local. They know the, the local region, they know the town, they know the people, they know the system, and they are extraordinarily valuable. And they're also, you, you, can, you can slot them in and slot them out, and they're not part of a bigger unit in that sense. 
Christmas Day with us. While military personnel have been busy helping the response to the coronavirus outbreak, there's a potentially big role for veterans as well. Team Rubicon, the disaster response organisation, is best known for deploying its mostly ex-military resources around the world. But now it's concentrating on the battle against the virus at home, appealing to veterans to volunteer. Its CEO is former Royal Marine Richard Sharp, and he spoke to our reporter, Tim Cooper. What's apparent that every day the needs of the community is going to rise, but the people available to support those needs are going to fall away because they're going to get sick. Um, and this is the prime opportunity for those that have served their country once before to step forward and volunteer with Team Rubicon to, to serve again, but here on our, on our home shores and with our own communities. Who are you appealing to specifically? What sort of veteran? Or anyone that served that's uh, under the age of uh, vulnerability at the moment. So if you're, if you're under 65 at the moment and you've served in the military, uh, at any point, we, we really do want you to come forward and fill in the online Google form um, and then be, be tasked into, into your communities around the UK. People will be asking, well, what sort of things will be happening to me? What can I do? Because people will be familiar with Team Rubicon, your disaster response, particularly overseas. But this could be very different. There might be many different job roles. Tell me about some of the things you think people might have to do. Yes, I mean, you're right. Team Rubicon UK is, uh, is an international disaster response organisation. But what we have is a capability set that matches to what's needed here. And we have very resilient people. Um, what was apparent was that there is no there was no common understanding of what was happening between the regions. So we've stood up a capability that will be an advanced recce screen around the UK to understand what the need is in all of the different communities and pass it up to a national incident management cell here, where we'll start then triaging that and, and allocating resource to meet these unmet needs before they grow. So over the next few days, we're going to get a much deeper picture of what the likely taskings on the ground are going to be. But we know that there can be communities that are struggling to get uh, fed. There is communities without a voice. You know, there's, there's, there's hidden communities within communities and we need to get into them and understand what their pinch points are now. The NHS is going to need significant backup. The big hospital NHS, uh, Nightingale in, in London, is undoubtedly going to need supporting. So we will have a variety of tasks from, from feeding to liaison to NHS backup. And we're going to have to roll our sleeves up and do some of the dirty work as well because it's uh, there's lots of nice volunteering opportunities out there but you know for those that have served they'll know that you know you don't always get to choose how you serve you've got to step forward and do what's necessary in these times of need. Why are veterans in particular going to be useful for this? Because we're going to have to surge our capability from 3,000 members to you know 20 30,000 veterans we want people that will understand how to quickly drop into a team how they'll quickly understand uh, to receive and assimilate information and start delivering tasks this place is built on mission focus output focus and belonging to something bigger than yourselves that's why we want to reach the veteran community on mass because they understand that you could have been outside for two weeks or 20 years it's in your dna there is that sense of service and understanding how to drop into that structure and start delivering beyond the numbers that you have there that's why we're looking for the veteran community there's a lot of government work going on we've never seen anything like this i mean it's just unprecedented and you are working within that framework are you we are so we started working with government two weeks ago um, to stand up and, and start coordinating the voluntary sector's response because there's so much great activity happening by the charities but there's no central coordination there's no understanding like I mentioned earlier, of where the greatest needs are and how they're going to meet that. So we're going to put that layer of, of coordination, command and control in our old language, over that and then start resourcing it with our people. We've got uh, about six weeks of money before we, we go out of business, but the, the need was so great that we, we couldn't wait any longer. So we are working on behalf of government, but we haven't yet achieved that funding. How can people get involved and 
How many do you think you might need? So the, the way to get involved is to just go to the Team Rubicon UK homepage and at the top there's a banner saying COVID-19, how can I help? And that allows you to register then and then we'll start sending you notifications of, of potential taskings. In these early stages, it's hard to know how many people we need, but it's going to be thousands and thousands of thousands. When we were young, when we were 9, 10, 11, and we decided to join the military, it wasn't pensions and these things that attracted us. It was a sense of service and a sense of belonging to something bigger than yourself. I firmly believe that we were built that way. And that's why we're appealing to the veteran community en masse again to, to come forward and belong to this mission with us. Because it could be 20,000, it could be 30,000 of you need. Because we're in for a long haul here. This is, this is a much bigger task than anyone ever uh, first envisaged. And the veteran community will be absolutely vital to the success of the UK's mission. That was Richard Sharp talking to Tim Cooper and that web address, if you're interested in volunteering, is teamrubiconuk.org. This is Zitrap. The Royal Navy says it has 6,000 personnel preparing to support efforts to beat the coronavirus. First Sea Lord Admiral Tony Radikin. 40 Commando are ready to deploy. And we have already had over 900 reservists volunteer for various roles. We all have a duty to serve our nation at this time, but we must look after one another in what is still a very fast-moving situation. And so for those of you who have submitted your notice or are approaching the end of your engagements but are concerned about going outside at this time, we have agreed various options for you to stay in the Royal Navy. We need to get ready for COVID-19 support operations. I have been delighted with the response from all of you so far. I know that these are challenging times for you and for your families, but you have stepped up in the way that the Royal Navy has always done. Thank you, and especially thank you to your families and loved ones for their support. Well, in Germany, Colonel Tim Hill, who's the British Army commander, admits the virus is creating a number of challenges for personnel and their families. I think they're coping really well. It's early days and I think it's, it's novel and it's very new for all of us. And I think people are showing a lot of resilience and, and also a, a lot of innovation. This is a marathon and it's not a sprint. So we need to think carefully about how we're going to occupy our children now that they're no longer at school. It's tough times, it's draconian, but I think we're pulling together nicely as a community. Well, on the Falklands, the military's put measures in place to contain any outbreak. Brigadier Nick Sawyer is the commander of British forces there. Six additional personnel and two intensive treatment unit capabilities will be deployed down to the Falklands in order to further increase the medical capacity of the King Edward VII Memorial Hospital in Stanley. And that will be to support the whole population in the Falklands. We've also implemented what I call enhanced social distancing for critical personnel such as pilots to further reduce their risk of catching COVID-19. Meanwhile, the forces community on Cyprus is having to adjust to big changes to their daily lives. From there, Chuck Adolfi. It'll be no surprise to you that despite some significant changes to the environment here, operations are continuing. This is despite there being restrictions in place across the forces community and also the Republic of Cyprus. Limitations on movement are similar to that of the UK. Travel is only allowed if it is essential, say to a supermarket or a pharmacy. And in the Republic, you must also carry a self-certifying statement of movement for each journey. That is for non-employment purposes or an MOD 90 if you are on the move for work. 
And as homes are forced into isolation, innovative ways to pass the time have emerged. An online gaming tournament is taking place this weekend. The Akrotiri Gym have been posting daily home workouts. And one sergeant has even resorted to bringing a separate attraction to his back garden daily to keep his family entertained. And we've also been doing our bit here at BFBS too. Morning presenter Humph usually takes to the decks at the local rugby club on a Friday night. But with current restrictions in place, he's been entertaining the forces community via a Facebook live stream. And the schools across British forces Cyprus are taking part in a mass sing-along to mark the end of the school term on Friday, with BFBS playing the Bruno Mars song, Count On Me, to pay tribute to the spirit shown across the community. Chuck Adolfi there from Cyprus. Well, at a time like this, the need for reliable, trustworthy information is higher than ever. It's perhaps why ratings for TV news bulletins have gone through the roof. But as the pandemic has spread across the world, so have any number of false claims, from hoax cures to claims COVID-19 originated in an American laboratory. Well, Tom Ascott is Digital Communications Manager at the Royal United Services Institute He's written about the threat of fake news during a crisis like this, and he told Paul Osborne the stories range from outlandish lies to others that aim to plant a seed of doubt. A lot of the time it is about planting questions in someone's head. These conspiracy theories or the, the fake news articles don't have to contain any information in them, which, which is necessarily very outlandish. The information in them can be quite reasonable, but there can be a lot of implications or the article itself can ask leading questions. Presumably the more often somebody sees that fake story in different places, the more likely they are to think it's true. Yes, statements that are repeated over and over again become easier to process for individuals and that makes them more likely to be believed. Whereas truthful new statements are harder for individuals to process and therefore are more difficult for them to, to believe. So what counts as a success for the people who are spreading these fake stories around the coronavirus? There are multiple strategic levels to um, disinformation campaigns. At the highest strategic level, this can be about, for example, Russia trying to raise its international profile, influencing other nations within its sphere of influence. It can be about posturing. Lower down from that, there are troll farms, which is where individuals who are employed to create fake news write all day. And for them, success is smaller scale. It is about infiltrating often an organic network and having their content be reshared between users. So the government has set up a special unit which it says wants to tackle the spread of fake stories. But realistically, what can it actually do other than just pointing at these things and saying that's not true? Next week, they're going to roll out a public awareness campaign called Don't Feed the Beast. The other way the government is tackling this is by working directly with social media platforms to have content taken offline. If they can work with experts to identify false information online, whether that's misinformation which is information which is simply wrong, perhaps from self-styled experts, or disinformation, which is often malicious information coming from bad actors. 
that will be much more beneficial than asking the public to try to be more critical online of the content they read. That was Tom Ascot from Rusi speaking to Paul Osborne. Christopher Lee is still with us. Christopher, it would be easy to assume that all these fake stories are coming from the usual suspects, Russia or China, but other countries have used the same techniques too. Yeah, including the United Kingdom. If you go back to 1970s and the Intelligence Corps, when it was then based at Ashford, it was set up to say, how do we counter, sort of question that Paul was asking, the guy from Rusi, how do we counter fake news? And the answer was very simple. You tell what you think to be the truth, and then you, you make the truth happen. And that is the only way in which you will convince people. Uh, fake news is rumor, it's mistake, it's movements of crisis. And uh, it's not all Russians and Chinese. The Americans, for example, the biggest fake news against America is actually run from Connecticut the guy in Connecticut that does it. The other thing, I mean, United Kingdom, for example, at the moment, it says, uh, stay at home and protect the NHS. And that message was right when it began. As it's moved along, the message, stay at home, protect the NHS, should actually read, stay at home and don't die. Quite an extreme uh, way to put but it. That, but that's what the government is understanding at the moment. It understands that that's what is the real message, but it's simpler to keep the original message going, and then you actually have to make it happen. So you go back to the, the idea in the 1970s. If you want to fix fake news, get the right story right yourself. You mentioned uh, this public awareness campaign that's going to start next week, Don't Feed the Beast. Um, how effective do you think that, that kind of campaign can be? But if you look back into the Second World War, it was the same sort of thing that was happening then. You know, tell the truth, be careful. Uh, you don't know who's a spy about. Uh, it worked. Because people started to say it themselves. They would say it to each other. They may say it as a joke. They'd write it on postcards. But the point is, they started to believe. We are actually reaching a point in this whole crisis where it is going to be so stark in the public's mind of what it really is about. And we haven't seen that yet that people will want to believe what the government says. But it's going through great difficulties at the moment on, for example, testing people. Um, where its credibility is a bit low. It's got to get its credibility up to another level and then people will believe what they say. Now, with much of Whitehall entirely focused on coronavirus, an important appointment this week was probably missed by many. Ken McCallum is to be the new Director General of MI5. In fact, it's the youngest ever leader. Christopher, he led the response to the Novichok attack in Salisbury and is promising to devote more attention to China. Yeah, he, he's been around some time. I mean, his deputy... You know, he's, he's deputy director general. When he joined MI5, which was what 25 years ago, uh, the world was a different place, but very much so in the United Kingdom. He takes over at a time when the emphasis for MI5, what it's got to do, is sort of starting to shift. For example, uh, it is it is far more to do with street crime, such as the rightist influences. And I think his broad look of what he's got to be able to do. With the same number of people, uh, he's got a minimum number of people, say 3,000 uh, operators at the moment, trying to deal with, say, 20,000 suspects. Uh, that remains, remains, remains his biggest, uh, biggest job, how to fix it. How to fix it with what's going on at the moment? It is probably the most difficult time for any director general ever to join. What will be his biggest priorities when looking at the security implications of the pandemic? Uh, the pandemic is, is to watch for... Uh, the possibility of terrorist uh, and crime, because it's concerned with crime as well. 
doing things under cover of the pandemic. And that is something which they haven't sort of figured out yet. They haven't seen anybody. There's been no exaggerated incident like sort of a, an individual attacking somebody on Westminster Bridge or an organization in, uh, going on in Paris, which is trying to bring down something in Paris. That is what they're looking for at the moment. What are the terrorists, the ones they know about, what are they planning if they are planning anything? Or are they actually trapped the way the same the rest of us are. Mm. Well, we see NATO member states helping each other out, donating protective equipment, but the Alliance is now also aware there are other risks out there they can't afford to ignore in this pandemic. You imagine being the Secretary General of, of NATO and you imagine him having to sort of convince the government we've got to see what the uh, Russians are doing. When the Russians are sort of, for example, selling equipment to, uh, to America, and saying, oh, no, it's a handout. This is part of the sort of things we should be watching. What is their next move? Why are they doing this? What's going on in, in, in Iraq? What's going on in, in Lebanon? Uh, what's going on in Libya at the moment? All these things that we have to, as NATO members, have to concentrate on all the time. Well, last week we heard about one military charity worried the lockdown could create a huge financial crisis. It's also making it harder to reach out to veterans who need one-to-one -one support. But one group in Scotland isn't letting the restrictions stop them getting together to help each other. They've set up virtual online hangouts instead, as David Civils McCann can explain. Hi, Addy. Jim, do you want me to bring you some dinner down? No, boy. Managing to get together at a time when we're being told to keep apart. The veterans of North Ayrshire are finding a new way to help each other through the tough times with a virtual daily hangout. Right, Stevie, I know that you're on your own, honey, and you've just finished working, haven't you? So how are you getting by? Have you got a lot of family around you to help? These online chats are a vital lifeline for this tight-knit community. Keeping an eye on those who are alone and vulnerable or just having a laugh and joke with one another. Former Royal Military Police Officer Suzanne Fernando started up the hangouts. Thank goodness that we did have this group going because it's been a godsend. We need to have the support available for all our veterans, not just those that are vulnerable, not just those that are dealing with medical issues. We all need the camaraderie. We all need to hook up with our old friends and... Um, it's been absolutely wonderful. How are you doing, son? Ah, no bad, no, no bad. bad. How's things in your household? Uh, well, it's just me and Alfie the parrot. Oh. <laughs> the group gets together online every evening, taking part in video chats to keep up with everyone. The group's Facebook page is also a vital way for them to keep in touch, posting messages if they're needing help or just someone to talk to. Army veteran Isabel Jackson lives alone and welcomes the company. There's always somebody there ready to chat to you, or ready to listen to you, or tell you how their day's been going, or tell you any problems that they're having and how they're solving it, um, and keeping each other's spirits up, really, because I live on my own, so really all I do is work. So when I've met Suzanne, I've been um, introduced to new people, and I've also... Um, been invited to clubs and I've got a wee bit of a social outlet now. And you've got Copy Scotland, you've got Legion Scotland, you've got all your veterans around you. That's why we're doing this every night. We're all here for each other. The veterans community in this part of Scotland is a very active one. They get together at regular breakfast clubs and other events to socialise and support one another. 
But with the restrictions in place, meetings in person won't be happening for the next few weeks, making the virtual hangouts a vital lifeline for some, including former Royal Engineer Gordon Greenan. Good bad crack, good laugh. Uh, just typical squaddy stroke ex-services partner. Uh, obviously can't get because we're not meant to get uh, pubs etc shut. We can't go to breakfast clubs, so it's kept us all in touch. Veterans are quite so some veterans be quite isolated. The breakfast clubs were starting to make a when I say a big break. They were making a big difference to veterans who feel quite isolated, particularly the more maturious. And that isn't strictly that's not a bona fide rule. There's a lot of younger veterans who are feeling isolated as well. <laughs> Getting together to chat and have a laugh is something we often take for granted. The restrictions mean that many of the most vulnerable veterans are at risk of becoming isolated. But these virtual chats make sure the veterans can still support one another from afar. All right, Jim. Hey. James. Right, bye. Bye, honey. David Civils McCann with that report. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, touching on the, the government advice to stay indoors, um, it's not always practical or even possible in other countries around the world. No, go and talk to a, a woman called Yvonne Aki Sawyer. She's the mayor of uh, Freetown, Sierra Leone. During the Ebola crisis, she fixed uh, how the country should handle it. She says she gets things from the advice from uh, Whitehall and it says stay at home. She said when you've got 15 people living in one room that is not good advice. Also you're dealing with countries in Africa, she is, uh, which are slum countries. They live in the slums. Don't tell them to wash their hands. There's no water. Don't tell them to keep clean because they live in mud. They've got weak conditions. They've got heart conditions. They've got lung conditions. And the other thing to remember, that this disease, as she says, this one is here forever. It's really just a question of how you handle it in future that's important. And that's it for this week. Thanks to you, Christopher, and to all of our contributors. Don't forget, there's more on the military response to the coronavirus outbreak at forces.net slash news. And you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBF SIP Rep. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode? For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>